0: guy in the church years ago that uh, would track, would grade preaching, so to speak, and track how many ums and ahs and whatnot that you said. (laughs) So my dad already told me he was was tracking that today. (laughs) But in all seriousness, hopefully um, this lesson I've been given to teach through is something that you um, can get something out of. And um, I would to ask that you be intentional about seeking to get something out of the Word of God this evening and to apply it to some area of your life as, God, as the Spirit of God points that out. We're going to be over in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And we're going to read through this portion of Scripture that um, includes a parable in it the parable that's been titled The Barren Fig Tree. So Luke chapter 13, and if you read with me starting, if you follow along with me starting in verse 1, it tells us, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye... "...that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Are those eighteen, upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem?" I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Jesus speaks here in this passage the parable of a barren fig tree to illustrate really um, one kind of overarching um, point here, and that's that we all have personal accountability to God. That does kind of fall into two different categories as we think about the unbeliever. The personal accountability that the unbeliever has to God is to repent and we're going to we're going to uncover more of that to the believer the personal accountability is that to bear fruit and that bearing of fruit is also evidence that I've that I've got a true new nature that evidence of real salvation as we dig into this we're first just going to look at kind of the context of the setting of this passage of Scripture. Then we're going to kind of examine the two questions that have the same theme that are posed here in this passage of Scripture. Then we're going to note the parable, and in doing so, look at some of the lessons that we can take out of this parable. So before we dig into this, let's just take a moment to pray here. Father God, we come before you this evening and um, are thankful for the Word of God, are thankful for how, um, as time changes and as the years go on, how the Word of God is still applicable to every generation and applicable applicable to our lives even now. Father, we pray that you would... um, take the word of god as it's presented this afternoon and father through the spirit of god might use it to um, point out areas in our life that need correction father that we might be um, attentive as we work through the word of god here that you might help me to uh, present these these thoughts with clarity and father that you might be pleased with what takes place here this evening and we ask these things your name, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we kind of try to unpack this portion of Scripture, um, it's helpful, at least helpful for me, to think about the context of which this passage is being um, uh, spoken. And if you look, you're in Luke chapter 13, if you just flip over to Luke chapter 12, we get some context of who the audience is here. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so we see here that Jesus is teaching, the setting is that Jesus is teaching uh, in the presence of a of a huge multitude it tells us there in verse 1 it's innumerable multitude lots and lots of people and so that's the that's kind of the setting in which he's teaching as he's as he's teaching and working through um, some of the some even other parables here we come to the end of chapter 12 and and in verse 54 we see here that Jesus begins to address Uh, not just his disciples as it was talked about in verse 1, but addressing the whole multitude. And we see that he um, kind of rebukes them for their spiritual dullness. If you look there in verse 54, it says, And he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? And so essentially he's telling them here, Hey, you guys have the ability to forecast the weather. But when it comes to spiritual matters, um, you can't discern that which is right. And he's pointing out the hypocrisy of their ability to have spiritual discernment. And then with with that thought, he moves into chapter 13 here. And he reviews with them two semi-current events of that time period and uses these to um, draw an illustration the first uh, of these two semi-current events of their time periods is found there in verse one where it says there were present at that season some that told him of the galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices And so, these people are referencing or telling him, recounting to him this story of Pilate having mingled Galilean's blood with the sacrifices. Now, um, there's some speculation as to what exactly, uh, what event exactly is being referred to here. Um, Some think that the reference here might be to a massacre that occurred in the temple Um, if this is the case it would line up with some of pilate's known brutality Um, this would have happened early in pilate's administration and in the timing of that would have been an event that happened prior to um, jesus's public earthly ministry um, it seems that these Galileans were followers of a man known as Judas of Galilee. He was known as an insurgent leader against the Roman occupation. Um, Acts chapter 5 and verse 37 kind of references him, and Acts 5.37 tells us, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So this could be the incident that is being referred to here. The um, historian Josephus, in his writing on Jewish culture and history, tells us that after Judas's death, his followers came to Jerusalem to the feast, thinking the whole incident of his um, insur- insurrection and insurgent uh, workings would have been forgotten by the Roman officials. But Pilate seems to have been informed of their presence in the city, and so he had them captured and executed. And Josephus thinks that this terminology about whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices could be referring to their blood mingled with their sacrifices might have meant that they were slain on the same day as the animals which were brought to the feast. Um, So that could be what's being referred to here. Others have speculated that perhaps... um, this was uh, another event that happened. Warren Wiersbe, in giving his opinion in his commentary, says the atrocity mentioned in verse one may have taken place when Pilate appropriated money to have appropriated money. Excuse me. Um, appropriated money from the temple treasury to help finance the aqueduct, and of course, of that. When that event happened, you can imagine some of the uproar from the Jews with that event. And, um, and so a large crowd of angry Jews gathered in protest. So Pilate had soldiers in civilian clothes mingle in with the mob. And using concealed weapons, the soldiers killed a number of innocent and unarmed Jews. And this, of course, would only have added to the Jews' hatred for their governor. So that's kind of the context which event actually applies here um, is some speculation, but that's kind of some of the context of what could be referred to here. Regardless of whatever version of the event is being referenced, it's evident that it left a big impression upon the minds of the Jewish people. The other current event that is referenced here is found in verse four, and he says, "Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem?" the The first incident that's being referred to here was caused at the hands of a treacherous government official. The second incident that's being referenced here seems to be one of more natural disaster or just pure accident. A tower had fallen on some individuals and killed them. And so these are two current events that Jesus brings up. And with those current events, he poses the same question twice. In verse 2, he says... Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? And then in reference to the tower in verse 4, he says, Are those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? And so he's asking, he's asking them, do you think that these, that this, these events occurred because these people were, were great sinners. And you have, to, um, you have to understand some of the Jewish culture and the Jewish way of thinking where they were very, um, you know, where they were very, They Scripture talks about them needing signs. And in that culture, as things happened, like there had to be some meaning or implication behind it. It was kind of the way that that culture viewed things. And so, um, they, the, the way of thinking was such that, well, if this happened to these people, they must, have been, they must have done something to deserve this, so to speak. It seems these questions meant to highlight the people's lack of spiritual discernment that caused them to fail to see their own accountability towards God in this matter of repentance. And again, this goes back to Jesus telling them, hey, you can discern the weather, but you can't discern what's right. They assumed and they made judgments that these people must have gotten what they deserved, whether by the hands of men or whether by the hands of natural disaster or natural means, because they must have been really, really evil people. And in doing so, they also failed to see their own guilt. Um, There's kind of two applications here. One is that we can be like the Jewish people, where as events happen in life, and we see events unfold in other people's lives, where... um, we can begin to make judgments about, well, God must, be, God must be dealing with them. They must be getting what they deserve. Now, certainly, the Scripture has lo- uh, principles about the law of sowing and reaping. But I also know that from time to time, I can be a very judgmental person, and then come to find out other facts, you realize, oh, Things were not all as they perceived to be. And so here they were very quick at judging the outcome of these people that died without looking inward at their own condition. Um, We tend to do this. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary kind of gives a funny uh, analogy or illustration out of history about um, this way of thinking, Wearsby writes the following story which illustrates the importance of not judging others by their circumstances, but rather to consider your own life. When the blind English poet John Milton was old and obscure, he was visited one day by Charles II, son of the king that the Puritans had beheaded. Your blindness is a judgment from God for the part you played against my father, Charles II said. Milton replied, If I have lost my sight through God's judgment, what can you say of your father who has lost his head? And so, um, perspective matters. And the one, the one thing that we do have most control over is internal perspective about our own life. And so, here these Jews were quick to judge the outcomes of others without looking at their own guilt. And to this, Jesus responded, and, to the, and, and here comes the application, but to this Jesus responds and responds in verse 3, and it repeated again in verse 5, as he asks them this question, it's a rhetorical question because he responds with the answer and he says, I tell you nay, no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then again, as he gives the, the, the question of the tower in Silo- Siloam, he replies again to his own question. He says, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all perish. Likewise, perish. Jesus makes it clear, and he's trying to drive home to this audience that it's foolish to make judgments about bad things that happen to other people. The fact is that we are all guilty before God, and each one has an individual responsibility and accountability to God. For the lost man, for the person that is not saved, this accountability or this duty is to repent. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You know, I find it interesting. We've been studying through the uh, imperative commands in Sunday school, and um, that comes out of Matthew 28 where he says teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and if you recall back to that series the very first command as Jesus comes on the scene is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and oftentimes, we like to think about this, this issue of repenting uh, as an invitation or as an option something to consider and sometimes even as a young person sitting in the, in the house of God or growing up in the house of God, I can tend to think about that as an option that one day I need to consider or deal with. But that's not the way Scripture presents it. Scripture presents it as a command. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts 17.30 tells us, And the times of this ignorance God winked at. And if we were to go back and look at some of that context, there's sometimes a measure of ignorance or lack of understanding that um, is in somebody's life. But as the Word of God is preached and as the Word of God is is come to be understood, that time of ignorance God winks at. God says it's over. But the time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth, all men, everywhere, to repent. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And here, in Luke chapter 13, not once but twice, Jesus repeats, warning these Jewish people. And even today, warning some of us that if each and every person does not repent, he or she will likewise perish. They will face the same ruin as those killed by Pilate. They will face the same ruin as those that had the tower fall upon them. Now, what is this this repentance? Uh, And we're going to attempt in some small way to try to define repentance. But in doing so, let's also make sure that we don't overcomplicate it. Repentance is really a change of mind. Or perhaps uh, a realization in that process of my mind changing to the way God sees things you see sometimes I have a perspective about how things are only later to find out that my perspective has been wrong and so repentance is coming to acknowledge that the way I've perceived things the way I've had things built up in my mind is as opposed to the way God has things repentance means a change of mind It means I'm I'm headed down one direction in life and that direction is really one that I am pleasing myself now that that might not mean that there's some some guardrails in life or maybe some restraint in life that doesn't keep me from doing exactly what I want to do but in my heart I'm going the way I want to go and if there's some restraint in my life that others have put there I don't like that but I'm going one direction in my life, a direction that I've set, a direction that pleases me, and in that process, I come face to face with God's standard and realize that my direction is an offense to God's way. And in coming to that conclusion, repentance... Is to turn from that direction, turning 180 degrees, turning to God's way, turning to God's view, abandoning my will, abandoning my view, abandoning my control, and turning from that and turning to God, for Him to be in control. Except ye repent. You shall all likewise perish the end um, the end is clear the end is not left with a question mark the end is clear as to the outcome when I choose not to repent then we shift gears here some having warned everyone about the need for repentance in a person's life in order for him or her to not perish, Jesus continues this theme of personal accountability towards God and begins to present that through the use of a parable to expound upon this thought that the Lord wants fruitfulness out of each and every one of his children. Let's note this parable here, and then we'll... Um, unpack some of the lessons that we can pull out of this in verse 6 there it tells us he spake also this parable a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard behold these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none cut it down Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Jesus here tells the parable of the barren fig tree to teach the lesson that God wants Every Christian to produce fruit in his or her life year after year the fig tree produced no fruit no figs which should have been the natural thing for the tree to produce since it was a fig tree here as we look at this parable we Kind of, kind of zooming out from this parable, we see the story of the parable, or kind of a synopsis of the story of the parable. In verse 6, the owner of the vineyard had a fig tree. A fig tree that was planted. There was some intentionality about it. And it was planted for a purpose to produce fruit. We see that because he came seeking fruit from it. In verse 7, synopsis of the story, the owner tells the dresser of his vineyard to cut it down. Three years, no fruit, plenty of time. It's not useful, cut it down. The dresser of the vineyard pleads to let it alone. One more year, one more chance to work with it. The interpretation of the parable is the owner of the vineyard is the Lord, is God Himself. And you can see that in verse 8 as the reference of the dresser replies back and he answers to him, Lord, capital L. The interpretation of the parable is that the owner of the vineyard is the Lord, God Himself. The dresser of the vineyard seems to be the Holy Spirit and the fig tree is referencing every believer. Fruit, in this case, is the evidence in a Christian's life showing a real life change. The reality is is that some Christians can go year after year with no spiritual fruit which should be a natural thing for the one who is truly a child of God. The answer to fixing the problem of the barren tree was to dig about it and to dung it. And God wants every Christian to be fruitful, and he works at helping Christian to do so. So that's kind of the the broad view of this. Let's look at some of the lessons that we can take and apply more personally. Lessons from the parable. In Israel, fig trees grew 10 to 15 feet in height and produced mature figs about the size of cherries every year. So it was an annual, repetitive thing. When a person plants a vine or a fruit tree, he usually has in mind a purpose for that vine or tree to produce a fruit that will be useful to either him in some way, either to eat or to sell and, and, and create income. A vine or fruit tree that does not produce its fruit has no other useful purpose and actually takes up space and nutrients from the soil as well as precious time and energy and maintenance from the one who is the vine dresser. The significance of the parable is that multiple times in the parable, the owner of the vineyard is said to have been seeking fruit from the fig tree he planted. God is looking in the life of every believer to bear fruit. Let's look at the relationship here of the owner of the vineyard, God, and the relationship he had with the fig tree, representing, again, every believer. First, we note here that God planted the fig tree. Verse 6 is, the, is what points that out to us. It says, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. It was planted God Planted the fig tree. God owned the fig tree. It's good for us to be reminded of this. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 does a good job of reminding us that God owns us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, a verse that many of you are very familiar with. And it says here, what? Question mark. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, and again, we've been reminded that when you come to a therefore, you pause to think about what the therefore is there for. And the therefore is that ye are not your own, but ye are bought with a price. That God owns us. So because of that, on the basis that God owns us, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So due to the fact of ownership because of the fact of ownership we are to glorify god in our body and in our spirit which belong to him now there's multiple things that could be said about how god is glorified john chapter 15 which is another passage that relates to fruit being born in people's life john 15:8 puts it this way he says herein is my father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. So, God planted the fig tree. God owns us. Planted the fig tree in his, um, whatever the, I'm thinking orchard, but I don't think that's what they call fig farms. But God planted us there God owned the fig tree. God owns us. God owns us not only um, in a spiritual way, but God also owns us by the right of creation. Jeremiah 1:5 told us, tells us, "Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Who did the forming in the belly? God did the forming in the belly? God owns us. We really, as a believer, are owned twice. One by the right of creation, which is also the right by which God comes along and says, repent. And by the right of purchase, because God has purchased us with his own blood. So we see that God planted the fig tree. God owns us as as believers. And if we allow God to work, if we allow God's will to be done in our life, God takes us, and just as He planted the fig tree, God takes us and God places us right where He wants us. One of the places that God desires to place a believer is in a church. If you're um, still there in Corinthians, you can look over at chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18 tells us but now hath God set planted now hath God set the members every one of them in the body as it has pleased him God uh, if you remember from first Corinthians 7 that God because of right of purchase God wants us to glorify him 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that God has set every member in the body as it has pleased Him. And God, in a very corporate way, has an institution in which He desires to receive glory. Ephesians 3.21 references that and tells us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. So, He places or plants us right where he desires so that our lives may bear fruit and one of the ways he does that is through his church for his glory a lot of application there that could be made am I bringing God glory through my service involvement in my church am I a part of a church am I tied to the membership of a church to where which I can bring God glory so God planted the fig tree and if in any way you've been in the will of God God has planted you where you're at right now and so um, are you bearing fruit where God has planted you the second lesson from the parable we see back there in Luke 13 is that he, he's God sought fruit. God sought fruit from the fig tree. That's referenced in verse 6, and again in verse 7. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. God is glorified by our bearing fruit, and he's actually looking for it. He's expecting it. He's comes looking for it. We already referenced John fifteen, eight, where he says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Ephesians two ten puts it in a little different way. He says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That God before ordained, God planned for the saved person to be unto good works. That's what He expects. And so the owner of the vineyard comes seeking fruit. Lessons from the parable. God planned the fig tree. God is seeking fruit from it. He's expecting it. The other thing we see here is that God is patient, and thankfully so, with the fig tree. In verse 7, he says, Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Well, um, actually, sorry, um, we see um, in verse 7 before that, he says, Behold, these three years I come. God is patient with the fig tree. And even, even after he says to cut it down, there, there's this response, Lord, uh, this request, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And it seems in the context, it seems to be implied that the owner granted the extra time. The extra, the, the, another, the another chance. And thanks, think, let's, let's be very thankful to God that he does not give us what we deserve. Yeah. Psalms 103.10 tells us, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And so we find here that the owner was patient. His expectations didn't change. He sought fruit, but he was patient and willing to extend the time. The other thing we see here, lessons from the parable, is that in this process, God purged, if you want to put it that way, purge the fig tree. The keeper said, till I dig about it and dung it. And from time to time in our life, God will come along and dig about. In John 15, in verse 12, it says, every branch in me... That beareth not fruit he taketh away and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it that it might bring forth more fruit in Colossians chapter 3 um, it talks to us about some of that some of that thing or some of the expectations in the process perhaps of, of being dug out And sometimes God needs to come along and dig some things out of our life. In Colossians 3, it's put this way, it says, But but now ye also put off these. There's some things in life that we need to be intentional about putting off, about having dug out. Put off these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, Out of your mouth lie not one to another seeing that you put off the old man with its deeds you see God wants the flesh out and sometimes in order to produce fruit we got to have some of those things rooted out dug out of our life sometimes some attitudes that we carry with us that keep us from bearing fruit. And the Holy Spirit will come along and begin to do the work of rooting around in our life to root those things out. In a very, very practical way, one of the ways that happens is through God's Word. Colossians 3.16 tells us, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns. The the thing I want to point out there is that the word of God is to teach us and sometimes to admonish us on rooting out, digging out those things in life that are hindering us, that are keeping us from producing fruit. God will dig some things out. I shall dig about it and dung it. And sometimes God has to do some dunging around some some fertilizing in our life because sometimes we can become stagnant set in our ways or have this idea that I have arrived and sometimes if I'm honest sometimes um, that thinking comes or that comes with uh, some length of having been a Christian having been saved and maybe I've already had some victory over some, some battles in my life and, and I can um, kind of become satisfied with where I'm at and kind of lean on past history, which makes me stagnant, or gives me this idea that I've arrived, and I begin to have a decline in the fruit-bearing process. You see, um, one one of the things, and we didn't really develop this thought, but one of the things about producing fruit is it's an ongoing annual process. And last year's fruit doesn't count for this year's fruit. And I can become stagnant with the idea that I've arrived and can begin to have declining in fruit bearing. And the Lord comes along and changes things up. Sometimes He comes along and puts different things or allows different things or allows trials To come into my life and you can accept those trials those challenges those circumstances that feel out of control or you can fight against it you can have the idea that I don't like change but remember God the owner places the tree Plants the tree. And maybe he has you right where he wants you because he knows exactly what you need to produce more fruit. And when I begin to see it that way, then I can begin to surrender to some of life's events in order to let him do the work. To produce the fruit in me. So don't fight that. God is trying to do a good work in you. God wants every Christian to be fruitful. Colossians 1:10 tells us that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And so God in this process of purging, comes along and digs things out. And sometimes that's not a very comfortable or very uh, uh, easy process to go through, but it's necessary if we're going to produce fruit that's useful to him. And then finally, maybe one of the more sobering things here, is God is what we see here, lessons from the parables that we see God's feeling here about unfruitfulness. In verse seven and in verse nine, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And if it bear fruit. And the husbandman replies, and we come, to, we come to verse 9, it says, And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Seems to be implied here that God has limited use for the saved man who does not bear fruit. Remember, he has saved us unto good works. He has saved us to bring Him glory. And what seems to be implied here, although not a pleasant thought, is that God has limited use for the child of His that does not bear fruit. God intended, you see, God intended for us to bring forth fruit. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are His workmanship, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Now don't don't get me wrong here. I in no way believe that works in any way maintains your salvation. That's not what we're saying here. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. But God saved you to be used of Him, to bring Him glory, to create fruit. To the point that if you're not doing that, God has limited use for you. Seems to be one of the implications from this. And so, lessons from the parable. God planted the fig tree. Owns it. God sought fruit from the fig tree. He expects it. God is patient with the fig tree. And thankfully so. God uses the purging process to create fruit. And God's feelings about unfruitfulness is that there's limited purpose or use to Him. So as we kind of Pull this to a close and come to the conclusion. The application to this section of scripture and this parable, again, is that you and I have personal accountability and responsibility towards God. If you're an unbeliever, if you've never trusted in God, in you, God is seeking the fruit of repentance brokenness and humility over sin. And though he bears long, continual refusal to repent spells certain doom, the same doom and destruction that came to those Galileans, that came to those at the tower in Siloam. To the believer, the conclusion or the thought here or the question perhaps to ask ourselves is, is there any tangible fruit of righteousness in my life? As God comes and looks for it, will he find it? Now, um, in in saying that, I kind of want to wrap up over in john chapter 15 which we've quoted a couple of times but if you go over to to john chapter 15 and we think about producing fruit and ask ourselves the question is there fruit in our lives some uh some encouraging thoughts here out of john chapter 15 on that in john 15 and verse 4 kind of in the same context of bearing fruit in john 15 and verse 4 says abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine no more can ye except ye abide in me and then the context keeps going but we're going to skip down to verse 8 and it says herein is my father glorified that ye bear much fruit so shall ye be my disciples so again, we see the, the um, implication of the context here is that we are to bear fruit. But sometimes, um, sometimes I can get lost or perhaps overwhelmed in this idea that I am supposed to produce fruit. And sometimes, I mean, let's just face it, from time to time, um, I'm a failure. And from time to time I can become discouraged and I can hear uh, perhaps a a message like this and can work up in my mind that um, I need to do better at producing fruit. Um, But that's not really the way it works. You see, here in John 15, 4, he says, Abide in me. And that, that term, abide there, in the Greek, in the Greek, it's uh, Greek word "meno," which means to remain, to stay, as in a given place, to dwell or to continue. And so, what he's saying is he's saying, "Abide in me, dwell in me, plant yourself in in me, continue in me," and then. In doing so, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. That bear there, the meaning of that word bear there, the Greek word pharaoh, it means to be moved along as having been born along. It carries the meaning of like um, under the force of something else to be borne along. It's it's the same word used in the reference in Acts, where the ship is driven by the wind, where the ship is powerless and the wind is doing the driving. And so, what is being conveyed here, and what's one of the things that we need to grasp in producing fruit, is what's being conveyed here: is that if I abide in the Lord if I dwell there, if I place myself there, that, he, that the, the outcome of that is He does the one that pushes and produces the fruit. I don't have to manufacture that. I don't have to be the one to make that happen. I have to sometimes just come to that place of surrender where I'm going to leave it to Him, where I'm going to hold on to Him, that I'm going to abide in Him, that I'm going to dwell with Him, and the natural outcome of that is He does the fruit production. And so, sometimes we can get caught in this mindset of, i got to do better. And there may be some practical things in life that you need to discipline yourself in. But put the focus on abiding in Him through His Word, through lining your life up with those things that you know to do are right, and the natural process of that is he does the fruit production. So as we wrap up here, if you are an unbeliever, the challenge to you is that God demands repentance. Have you ever repented? And then, as the Holy Spirit examines your life is there fruit is there fruit in your life and if there's not are we willing to uh abide in the lord so that he might use us pastor